0: Open the cover and it begins three word sentence. He says, Life is difficult. And I remember just in reading it, appreciating his uh, frankness. Life is difficult. Doesn't attempt to lay the blame for that anywhere. He wasn't telling it was my him he wasn't telling me it was my fault that I'm creating all my problems wasn't laying the blame for that elsewhere or with life itself but rather pointing out the bare truth life is difficult and the Buddha was a great one for frankness as well one of the things that the Buddha reiterated again and again throughout his life was in explaining to people, he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. He was very much a pragmatist. The Buddha wasn't concerned really with metaphysics or philosophy. And indeed, lots of times when people put questions to him about the origins of the universe and uh, the workings of karma and that kind of thing he, he declined to answer and kind of bring the questioner back to the reality of this human situation and to where we can really make a difference pointed out that we experience suffering and that there's the opportunity to know the end of suffering. I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. And if we were being pedantic, we might ask, well, is that one thing or two? Suffering and the end of suffering. It's very interesting, I think, that the Buddha Specifies that as being one thing and one thing only rather than the idea that there's suffering and there's something completely different a second thing called the end of suffering he directs us to look at suffering and the end of suffering as one thing probably some of you are very familiar with the story of the Buddha but it's nevertheless a good one so the the story uh, of the Buddha's life before being a Buddha Buddha meaning awake the awakened one is that he grew up with a very privileged and wealthy life he grew up as a kind of prince although it's a little grandiose more like a head of a clan in northern India and as such lived a life of uh, luxury to a great extent but at some point when he was in his late twenties, became very disillusioned with the kind of hollowness of the life of pleasure and luxury and wanted to leave it behind, wanted to discover something else and in leaving the kind of this luxurious realm the palace where he lived uh, the story tells us that he, he went out and he saw first an, an old person and a sick person and then a dead person a corpse and he was very much struck by the sense of his own mortality and seeing that that sense that that too is my fate that life is pointed only in that direction old age, sickness and death and somehow the inescapability of that really threw him back to a lot of questioning about his lifestyle, what he had been living and kind of generated that sort of existential angst a want a, a, a longing to know something of a deeper order. It set up an awful lot of questions about life. And shortly after that, he saw a yogi, somebody sitting under a tree in meditation. And that spoke to him as an opportunity. And so that's the beginning of the, the Buddha's quest to understand Suffering, and to know the end of suffering suffering in his sense not in an obvious an extreme external way living a luxurious life but having a sense of the hollowness a sense of futility going along with that and being driven to discover something deeper After the Buddha's enlightenment, he uh, went to find his, his five former friends who he'd practiced with, in order to share his understanding with them. And the the phrase that's used in the in Buddhist teachings is, he went forth out of compassion for went forth to teach his five friends out of compassion for the world. It's a very beautiful phrase. He wasn't, looking, he wasn't going to teach them as a career move he wasn't going to teach them for fame and fortune but out of compassion for the world the relationship between suffering and compassion is a profound one and one that's worth us being deeply interested in so the Buddha points out I teach suffering and the end of suffering as one thing one of the other things that he said very wonderfully he says weather is clinging there is suffering where there is suffering there is clinging and for me that's one of the most fantastic teachings of the Buddha if we don't manage to remember any of the rest that's probably enough to contemplate for the rest of our lives where there's clinging there is suffering where there's suffering there is clinging this has shown itself in my own life and practice to be 100% true 100% of the time where there's clinging there is suffering when we look we can't help but see the truth of that statement and yet we until we've seen it absolutely crystal clearly the entrenched habits of clinging are so strong we keep tightening around our experience with the result that we suffer over it We cling to what I want. And therefore we suffer. Just in sitting in the hall, longing for the bell to ring. Is the problem in life that the bell isn't ringing? Or is the problem clinging to wanting the bell to ring? That in making a demand on life, that insistence that life somehow conform with how I want it to be, that clinging engenders suffering. We cling to our ideas of how things are, of how the world is, our views our opinions, our notions, our ideas We think, how often when we've been in conflict with someone has it been to do with clinging to a view? Nothing wrong with having a view about something but when we get rigid and tight around it when it becomes, I'm right tremendous capacity for suffering over that to the extent of wars the very fact that I can hold a view and be convinced that it's the right view the best view, the correct view and that somebody else can hold an opposite view and be equally convinced what does that say about views? not the views that produce the suffering views are just come into being based on our experience, on our conditioning but when we cling to them how we suffer over being right or being wrong about what others think of me about what I think of others When we cling to views there's suffering we cling to this sense of me my life and the way it seems to be just stretching out endlessly ahead of me the way it seems to be it stretches back at least in memory beginninglessly we might have the, the storyline of being born and all of that, but the experience is just of it kind of going back and memory just goes on. And in our idea of ourselves, we just go on and on and on. We have the, the story that will die eventually, but we don't really live in that as if that's true. We live with the sense of me going on, going on, tomorrow, next year, I had a, a great-aunt who died last week, the uh, age of 96, I think she was. She'd been quite uh, senile for some time and was living quite a happy life somehow, although she seemed to not be in this world at all. She was uh, sometimes in uh, 50 years ago and sometimes somewhere we couldn't manage to understand where it was, but quite happy. And then she... Passed into a, some kind of coma and then died. And when when I heard that my great aunt had died, I was, I was on the phone to a cousin, and they said to me, "Oh, and uh, it's terribly sad, Auntie Wilma's died." And I I don't know, I don't have the kind of relationship with my cousin where I could kind of do an inquiry with her, but. I don't know if she was just sort of reporting that because that's what you do when people die talk about it being sad or if she really felt it as a a sad thing that our 96 year old aunt had died but what else did she expect really there's no you know you're on the home straight at 96 Where else is there to go? And yet in our society, the way we talk about death is always in terms of getting better. Even people in their 90s, they get sick. And we talk about, you know, the diagnosis and getting better, as if if there's always a chance for some improvement, even in the great extended old age. There's an incredible kind of denial about the absolute certainty of death this life is certainly uh, unpredictable, but if we're looking for certainties, there's one. In fact, there's the only one. We're going to die. It's often seen as a kind of morbid reflection, uh, at least in Western society. But there's something extremely powerful about recognising, about honouring, about owning up to the fact that we're going to die. this reflection in the Zen tradition it says death is most certain the time of death is uncertain what should I do has the capacity reflecting on death in that way to wake us up from the sort of torpor of going along going along going along in our lives And yet we cling to life, to my life. This idea of it going on and going on. And anything that interrupts that ill health, unwanted circumstances, or the idea of it ending, represents, understandably, but represents an enormous amount of agitation for us. Despite the absolute certainty that it's just going to end. Breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, going on for some unspecified time, and eventually breathing in, breathing out. Stop. That, that's the truth of our existence. and There's no, nobody can disagree. And yet we continue to cling to my life, my future, whatever that means. And in that clinging, there's suffering. Where there's clinging, says the Buddha, there's suffering. Where there's suffering, there's clinging. Where there's suffering, there is clinging. When we notice that we're suffering, when we're finding our life, or some aspect of it, confusing, bewildering, overwhelming, painful, disturbing, difficult to bear, we're clinging. There's something we're holding on to. We'd like to believe it's someone else's fault, or that we've just got something wrong. but our suffering is an incredible signpost it's, it's calling us to recognize that we're holding on tightly and it's an a extraordinary practice for us to have the intention to be honest with ourselves when when we're suffering, to ask, what am I holding on to? What am I tight around? Because whatever it is that we're tight around, that clinging is leading to that suffering. Where there's that suffering, there's that clinging. Our suffering is calling to us for attention and we try so hard to distract ourselves from it to set up some kind of um, escape mechanism some kind of clever technique or maybe meditation meditation can be rather than a journey into the heart of suffering rather than understanding what the Buddha means when he says one thing and one thing only suffering and the end of suffering meditation actually is to see suffering and the end of suffering but if we're not careful it becomes a clever trick it becomes an avoidance mechanism of suffering Meditation is for us to look suffering in the eye and see the emptiness of it. When we look into the heart of suffering, we see the end of suffering. But despite that promise of spiritual practice, we continue to try and negotiate our way around it favorite example it comes in every talk pain in the knee pain in the knee we're sitting there trying to make it go away all the instruction meditation practices is about being with things as they are but I'll be with things as they are as soon as I can stop my knee hurting or if only my knee would stop hurting then I could really be with things as they are And then, we listen carefully in the instructions and we hear, no, no, we have to just be with things as they are. That includes the knee. And then we think, ah, oh, okay, I'll be with my knee. That'll stop it hurting. And that becomes its own negotiation. That's not really being with. Being with in order to make it go away is a kind of a bargain. Okay, I'll be with you if you'll stop hurting. It's still part of the trying to control being with doesn't have an agenda being with doesn't make demands being with asks nothing of experience demands nothing of life but is content genuinely to listen to hear, to feel to listen to that knee pain to listen to the heart's pain to really be with what's unfolding that knee pain if it's our suffering is calling from our, for our attention and our suffering is doing that constantly calling for our attention. And yet we keep wanting to go elsewhere. We keep wanting to keep it out. Like it's knocking on our door, like an unwelcome guest. Mr. or Mrs. Suffering. And we're like, oh, not him again. We try to pretend we're not in. I'm I'm meditating, breathing in, breathing out. We won't listen to the the knock of suffering it might be in the knee, it might be in the heart whatever but our suffering really needs our attention if we want to know the end of suffering letting suffering in is the only way so even though we've locked the door and uh, closed the shutters and disconnected the doorbell and we're trying to breathe in and breathe out desperately to not notice it then suffering has to just, it has to find another way. It tries to come in the window. we done everything we can to distract ourselves from the knee pain. Some other difficult aspect of our experience is revealed. Agitation, maybe, or restlessness. It's our suffering presenting itself in another way. We bar up the window, it starts to take off the roof tiles whatever it might be, our suffering. That's why the Buddha says one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. We see the futility in our practice of trying to deal with suffering or end suffering from ignoring it, running away with it, or having strategies for it. In the end, we're invited to open the door and let it in to look suffering in the face to make room for it that's what the Buddha is asking us to do when he says he teaches one thing suffering and the end of suffering Buddha asks us to attend to that suffering with the kind of attention this is the quote of the Buddha with the kind of attention that a mother gives to her only child with that kind of care Can we imagine meeting our pain pain in the knee the pain in the heart with that kind of care and attention that a mother gives to her only child that care couldn't, wouldn't dream of shutting out of turning away from of giving up on that turns toward once in um, in a monastery in Asia I had a particularly difficult uh, encounter with my teacher he said something to me which was very helpful ultimately, but at the time was extremely painful for me and I remember coming out of the interview feeling very upset and I I went to lie on the lawn of the monastery and I covered my I kind of curled up in a ball and covered myself with my meditation shawl and sobbed for a long time <laughs> I don't remember how long but for a long time and feeling utterly miserable alone forsaken disillusioned and in pain it was like a great knot of suffering all at once which obviously I couldn't attribute just to the exchange with the teacher but somehow a kind of gathering of momentum of pain and at some point in uh, lying there experiencing this anguish and aloneness there was a way in which awareness was just tender enough for a moment that it ceased to be my pain and my loneliness and my anxiety and rather than it all being so personal what I saw was someone lying on the grass under a shawl crying and all I could do was to care for that just like if you saw somebody here lying on the grass crying the heart would respond with compassion with care And in that moment, in those kind of moments the relationship to suffering is transformed. Not through looking elsewhere not through trying to be rid of not through trying to transcend but through being honestly and nakedly in the heart of that suffering. The Buddha teaches one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And when I came out from beneath that shore, I looked around in the monastery with those eyes of caring, of compassion and I saw suffering the same as I'd seen underneath the shore I could see around me in the dogs that lived in the monastery and their precarious and uncertain life they led. in the worn faces of the workers at the monastery And yet that suffering when we see it nakedly, without turning away, speaks to us in a different way. At another time I was in a a taxi going from Bodhgaya to Gaya in India Bodhgaya is the place where the Buddha was enlightened and uh, two and a half thousand years later it's one of the most desperate places on earth it's the poorest part of all of India it has the lowest literacy rate of all India the highest crime rate the worst corruption It's pretty much lawless. And having been there every year for the last 12 or 13 years, I have some quite dear friends now living there and just each year hearing the stories of some of the incredible cruelty and hardship and difficulty that people live with there. And on the, uh, this time I was going in a taxi from the small village of Bodgaya to the town of Gaya to pick someone up from the railway station. And we drove into town on a road that I hadn't uh, been on before, through the outskirts of Gaya. <coughs> and Gaya is like a hell realm. It's uh, incredibly dirty, incredibly noisy, Incredibly polluted, it's, and people's dignity is hanging by a thread of surviving in this kind of environment. As we drove through, just seeing people working, living, loving, managing, bringing up children, fighting, just all the stuff of human life in the midst of the most incredibly difficult conditions and the impact on the heart maybe just hearing about that but certainly seeing that the impact on the heart was incredible when the heart's impacted by pain whether it's our own pain in the example I gave just before under the shawl or others' pain in this example. Very easily, if we're not careful, the heart either feels overwhelmed, helpless, despairing, or it hardens and turns away. But if there's a capacity to stay there to go to the heart of suffering to, as one teacher said, keep the heart open in hell then somehow what's happening is transformed sitting in the taxi there without sinking into despair or overwhelm without turning away and closing down somehow I saw that love was the only response that made sense I couldn't do anything tangible in that moment to help but nor could I turn away and close my eyes to that. But somehow there's the see- there was the seeing that love is what underpins all of this. All of this. The, the, the terrible and cruel faces of this life equally as the beautiful and touching faces of life and that love can't be described imagined can't be taught but What's discovered is that love in the midst of suffering that we don't close down to. Love is somehow what responds suffering one of the bases for that kind of compassion or love is the recognition that everybody is in the same boat in the way that we touched on this afternoon in the metta meditation the recognition that everybody wishes to be happy that everybody knows the experience of sorrow, of pain, of difficulty, of struggle. The heart can't fail, if we really acknowledge that, the heart can't fail to respond. The heart that neither sinks into despair nor turns away doesn't really differentiate between... My pain, your pain, his pain, her pain. The heart just sees pain and naturally extends itself, naturally cares. With a heart that's open to suffering, compassion is unstoppable. that compassion is the most powerful energy and it's that which naturally expresses naturally reaches out if we can have the courage the bravery, the willingness to keep our heart open to the pain whether it be in here or elsewhere may all beings live with compassion may all beings Keep their hearts wide open. May all beings be liberated from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash do oh, no. it?